Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food. Hey everyone, my name is Ryan Mara Evans and I'm a student farm manager with the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Joining me in the studio today is Jack Hadid. Jack owns and operates Featherstone Fruits and Vegetables, a 250-acre certified organic farm in Minnesota. Featherstone boasts over a 400-family CSA and distributes to food co-ops and wholesalers across Minneapolis and Chicago. Welcome, Jack. Thank you for having me. So to begin, I, th- I thought it'd be good if you can take us to Featherstone Farm, paint a picture of the cultural and physical landscape that you work in and that you've raised your family in. Mm-hmm. Sure enough. So uh, Featherstone Farm is located in, in southeast Minnesota, not far from the Mississippi River, in what's called the bluff country or the driftless area of southeast Minnesota. So you could picture an area of rolling hills, bluffs, uh, river uh, valleys, and so forth. Uh, tremendous high grass prairie topsoil, uh, which of course is one of the great gifts of the American Midwest, and I'm fortunate enough to farm uh, some of the very best. Uh, We rent much of the acreage that we farm, uh, although we do own some land. Uh, And the fields that we uh, work are separated into valley and ridge fields that are as far as three, four, five miles apart. And uh, so we're uh, scattering our plantings over a a wide range of locations, topography, soil types, um, hydrology, um, and so forth. Uh, because with mixed vegetables, uh, one needs a range of these things in order to produce consistently good crops. So uh, we have a sort of a patchwork arrangement of uh, plantings, again, uh, centered around a single uh, wide floodplain west of the town of Rushford, which is uh, a truly unique and uh, uh, advantageous place for growing vegetables, uh, five feet of black silt loam uh, with uh, sand beneath it, which drains that soil very well. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's the envy of every farmer that ever visits us from uh, any coast or uh, even just up the road. It's, it's a really remarkable place that we are uh, renting in the valley uh, near Rushford, Minnesota, and then, um, and then we're farming ground, ground on the ridgetop nearby as well. So this is small town Minnesota, uh, not far from uh, the city of Rochester, where the Mayo Clinic is located, uh, but still a um, an area where, because of that topography, uh, large scale agriculture has not taken quite the same hold it may have had uh, may have taken even 100 miles west of us, where you're much larger, uh, larger fields, larger plantings, larger land holdings. We're still in an area where there's uh, still a feeling of family scale agriculture. Uh, good topsoil, ample water, and uh, really advantageous growing conditions for a, a small vegetable farmer. Things that are absolutely crucial to the development of small local economies. Uh, so, a- as I understand, you, you were a student at Yale, and you met your wife uh, in in the 80s, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep, 1988, so, perhaps. Mm-hmm. 1988, on the dot. Um, so, how did you develop your interest in agriculture while in a place like Yale um, that doesn't traditionally, I suppose, funnel students or its graduates into, you know, work that requires manual labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and was it like a nascent kind of desire to work in agriculture or was it something that was more developed in your work like after you graduated? Well, the seeds were sown certainly while I was here at Yale and there was a lot of serendipity. There was a lot of uh, just straight good luck that came my way. Uh, 
I, I uh, lived off campus uh, starting in my sophomore year of school, so I was already cooking and sort of keeping my own household already as a, as a sophomore at Yale College. And uh, that brought me in touch with this uh, edge of the woods market, um, uh, which at that time was much closer to campus. So buying food, uh, preparing it. Um, I was a student of architecture for several years there, two years there, uh, studied architecture fairly focused way. And at some point, I became aware that I enjoyed making the models of things, working with my hands more than the um, uh, more of the esoteric uh, aspects of design and, and architecture. I just became more more aware that this is what I enjoyed doing. Uh, spent a lot of time off campus, especially my sophomore junior years, uh, developing community contacts that got me thinking out of the box a little bit, I guess. But uh, perhaps most important, I, I did spend, I took a year off of school between my junior and senior years at Yale College. And I went to uh, Sweden, which my ancestors in, in uh, southern Sweden, uh, studied uh, international development at a small school in southern Sweden. And during that time made an uh, international trip to rural India for about seven weeks. And uh, this is what got me really thinking a lot about working in uh, rural places and about food and about uh, all level of tie-ins with um, uh, food and, and uh, uh, um, land use for sure and political economies and so forth, things that I then came back to Yale in my senior year and put to use as a, as a, uh, a one-year anthropology major, I guess. I put all those classes together in a single year. and But that single experience of being in India really set that idea in motion that I would want to return, first of all, to, to live in the country someplace, work with people in, in, in rural areas. Um, thought of going back to India or doing a Peace Corps sort of a thing, but uh, in the meantime decided to take a job on a farm to get some actual skills. And uh, in the summer of 1988, very fortunate to go to work with another Yale alumni, Sam Smith, um, who at that time had been running an veg organic vegetable farm in Massachusetts for already 15, 20 years. Uh, so I did an internship at this uh, caretaker farm in Massachusetts, uh, Williamstown, Massachusetts, and that really captured my imagination, as you can imagine. And uh, ultimately, it set me on this course of working with my hands, um, rural uh, 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 locations and uh, engaging with rural peoples and uh, 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 moving towards this present career in, in growing and, and, uh, and uh, selling organic vegetables. So could you outline the, the road you took from those early experiences on a farm to kind of the, the genesis of the Zephyr Valley kind of community co-op, which, as I understand, was almost the beginning of Featherstone? Mm -hmm. um, how, did, how did that project come about um, and what was going on in the years in between leaving Yale and starting that up? Mm hmm. Well, there's really no way to get the kind of experience that one needs to start a vegetable farm uh, but to do it, I believe. At least at that time, there were not a lot of farms that where a person could work outside of uh, this caretaker farm I was lucky enough to, uh, to work with in, in, the, in the late 80s. Um, there were very few places. It was the beginning of the organic movement, and uh, the idea of local agriculture, much less organic agriculture, was, was these were uh, far in the future. So the only way to really uh, to, to, to immerse oneself to do, to do it was to, was to go to work on one of those few farms that were engaged in this in the eight, in 1980s and early 90s. So uh, my partner Jenny and I, who subsequently my, uh, my wife Jenny and I, uh, worked and um, lived on farms first in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. 
another uh, legacy uh, vegetable producer there in central Pennsylvania that we were fortunate enough to work with for a couple of years. Then out to California, uh, to a, a, a farm in the Central Valley that was growing organic vegetables and sort of a, 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 a industry leader at that time, was already doing a lot of very advanced um, organic systems development and so forth. I was lucky enough to land there with Jenny in the early 90s and worked off and on there for a number of years, just gathering experience in the, uh, in the world and, and in the field and uh, brushing up on my field Spanish, which had been uh, uh, pretty much uh, gathering dust since I was in high school, and uh, just adding experience and, and inspiration along the way from the people that I worked with. Um, the farm in, full, in, uh, in California that we worked at, Full Belly Farm, was a uh, farm that was managed by three families in uh, a, a kind of a cooperative business arrangement. Um, they had their homes there on this farm and was a really uh, a wonderful environment to, uh, to c- sort of come of age uh, for Jenny and me um, in our early 20s. Uh, there were young kids there. And this idea of, of living and working together in community with other people uh, in this vegetable business was uh, really captivating. And uh, these folks remain some of our very best friends to this day. Um, we attempted to transplant that kind of a community and uh, a vegetable farm from the you know, arid Zone 10 Central Valley, California, back to uh, wet, cold southeast Minnesota, where my ancestors were from in the mid-90s, and uh, in doing so, uh, established this Zephyr land co-op that you referred to. And uh, it seems like ancient history. It was in a certain way, but uh, it was the roots of, of, of our uh, vegetable farm that we're in now. So... Could, could you elaborate a bit more on the links, philosophical or otherwise, between the Zephyr Land Co-op and then Featherstone Farm? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing to understand, I think, is that uh, for anyone getting into uh, vegetables or uh, non-traditional agriculture of one sort or another, access to land is on a very practical level is one of the great challenges and remains to this day one of the great challenges, perhaps even more so in the Midwest, uh, where $7 corn in the last few years has created a, uh, a intense competition for access to land, and not just good land, but the best soils, the best fields where, uh, as organic vegetable farmers, we really need to be located. Uh, when we moved back from California in 1993, I guess it would have been, uh, we were simply looking for land that we could afford at that time. And the arrangement of purchasing a piece of farmland uh, as a cooperative organization, six of us originally and then soon after eight individuals pooling resources uh, to purchase this piece of land and then managing together, not just acquiring but then uh, cleaning up an old farmstead and uh, uh, managing that, uh, the woodland and the the pastures and so forth. I mean, it's a great deal of work. And uh, so... uh, not just philosophical, but practically speaking, was a really good option for us in those early years. Okay, so the the mission statement for Featherstone Farm it includes a little line about personal sustainability. Uh, what what does personal sustainability mean or look like to you? Well, this is a real work in progress, honestly, as as all aspects of of sustainability for me and for Featherstone Farm. 
you know, there, there are many aspects of what we do that are really taxing on the body, knees, and back. Uh, I know a lot of older farmers uh, in, in our area that, uh, are, you know, walk with big limps or, or, or you know, uh, uh, can't lift uh, what, what they once w- were able to lift with their backs and so forth. There's a great deal of, uh, uh, that we can do to, to make it possible to keep up what we do physically and make it sustainable into uh, 20, 30, 40 years from now, where I hope to be doing what I'm doing when I'm still 70, uh, 75, 80 years old, if I can, uh, and there are limits to what the body can take there. But there's also the, 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 the stress part of it. And um, the stress comes from many directions and, and uh, uh, you know, we, we can manage it in different ways. But uh, uh, certainly finding something that, that, um, that doesn't take you know, all of one's energies, um, leaving a person completely exhausted every day, uh, forcing compromises with uh, family time or with other things. Uh, there's there's got to be a way to keep uh, this life's work of agriculture in balance with life itself. Uh, because farming for me, and I think for many people, is not merely a, a job, it's not a vocation, it's, it's really a way of life. And um, to the degree that it doesn't permit uh, time for family things, times for relaxation, times for hobbies, uh, creative energies off the farm uh, of, of all sorts. It's really, it can be, a, uh, it can be overwhelming, it can be unsustainable. So I have to remind myself when I write and when I'm talking around the supper table, whatever, with the family, uh, that personal sustainability really has to be, along with financial sustainability, in place before uh, a farm like Featherstone can devote significant energies or do very much at all on, on the bigger picture environmental uh, sustainability issues that we're also engaged in. So to kind of pull out one kernel from what you're saying, right, it's the importance of family and trying to balance family with, with work life. Mm-hmm. So I grew up, my family, they own a flower shop in northern Denver. I spent a lot of my childhood there. And I think it's really interesting to hear other families' stories of, you know, how do you balance that fine line between the workplace and then the family place, um, especially when the borders between the two can kind of like dissolve or become muddy mm-hmm. or gray. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what you found uh, in your experiences in raising a family on a family farm? Yeah. Well, I, for me, of course, there's nothing better than having my family around on the farm. My, my three sons, um, extended family visiting. My brother was part of the uh, uh, business when we first started in the, in the, in the 1990s. Uh, having that community, having the family present and engaged uh, day to day, uh, hour by hour, season by season on the farm in particular is really a wonderful thing. And um, uh, there's a broader community of people that work with us as well that, that uh, have the potential at any rate to, to blend uh, in with, the, with those family things, with uh, work meals and, and uh, family meals and guests and just this community of people working on the farm. Uh, we've attempted to create that to some degree and, and, and succeeded here and, and failed there. But uh, the idea behind it is, is really an important one to me that, uh, yes, you need a certain amount of separation between uh, uh, the work of the farm and the life of the farm and, and life outside of it. But there's also something really uh, wonderful about what I do day by day and that I really cherish and that, of course, I want to share with, with the family and, and take a great deal of value having them associated day by day, as I say, with what I'm doing. Uh, and I, I, I like the idea that, that ultimately I could be creating a, uh, a business or a, 
a vocation, a way of life on, on, on the farm that, that uh, any of my sons might care to come back to. I've seen it happen on other farms, and uh, kids come back and, and uh, take a more active role voluntarily rather than just going out and weeding or, or helping out on farm market days or whatever as they might have uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, volunteering to come back and work and, and be paid for it, but to, uh, to engage on their own accord. That's a, that's a great uh, aspiration. I don't know if they will pull it off, but uh, you can always aspire. So one of your sons, he's actually a good friend of mine, Emmett. Um, he's in my year. He's a sophomore at Yale College. He's also a fellow student farm manager. Uh, he's kind of told me about this this almost like polymathic mythic figure in the Hadid family narrative, A.P. Anderson, who was one of your ancestors. Uh, could, could you tell us a little bit about who A.P. Anderson was and then what your relationship to him and the work that he did during mm -hmm. his life uh, is? Mm -hmm. Yes, well, you're talking about my, speaking about my great-grandfather who uh, was born on a homestead uh, at Featherstone Township, the the uh, inspiration for the name of our current farm, about uh, 80 miles upriver from where we presently farm. And uh, I know of this man uh, largely through a memoir that he published at the end of his life in the 1930s, which looked back over uh, his experience growing up on the homestead, uh, eventually uh, getting out of uh, that area and going to the University of Minnesota, uh, studying botany, and then uh, uh, going to Munich to do his doctoral work and and plant physiology, and uh, he became an inventor. He became a world traveler, uh, very successful uh, in business and in a whole range of things, but moved back to southern Minnesota uh, later in his life and uh, continued to farm there in this uh, in Featherstone Township. And um, through his memoir, I know him not just as the successful inventor and uh, 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 you know, educated world traveler, but I know him as an early conservationist because so much of his writing in this, uh, uh, in this uh, seventh reader, the, his memoir that's left to us, uh, describes um, his experience of plowing up the high grass prairie in the 1870s and 1880s and clearing land and seeing the effects of uh, erosion and, and, and tilling down that primordial uh, sod that had been there uh, for, for so long. And um, he was there and saw the first threshers and the first equipment come onto the landscape in, um, in the grain belt in the 1880s and 1890s and the mechanization. And uh, in the early part of the 20th century, he saw the, the direction that agriculture was moving in. And uh, he was really in many ways a, a, a precursor to Aldo Leopold in his understanding of ecosystems and the relationships between uh, soils and uh, flora and fauna and whole plant and natural communities and landscapes rather than uh, merely um, individual species, which was ultimately what he studied as a botanist. And the memoir, this, this, uh, the seventh reader that I uh, latched onto as a Yale student uh, became a huge inspiration to me in terms of this man's uh, passion for conservation, um, uh, great appreciation for the natural world and, uh, and then tireless work to plant trees, to experiment with uh, 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 agricultural systems and uh, various plants. He was trying, attempting to uh, uh, domesticate certain grains even in the early 1900s um, at this place in Featherstone Township. You know, long accounts in his, in his uh, autobiography essentially of, of all this work and 
uh, gigantic inspiration to me, a uh, kind of thing that really captured my imagination, again, as an undergraduate here looking for uh, something to um, really wrap my arms around as a vocation, uh, something uh, very close to home where, with me right now and, and just being 80 miles up the road from, from where all this took place. And uh, again, the, the, uh, the, the namesake for our current vegetable farm. So you mentioned a little bit how, or at least like the agricultural processes and systems that A.P. Anderson was using. Uh, so I'd like to now go a little bit into the nuts and bolts of your farming operation. What are you growing? How much are you growing? Um, and how are you growing it? Mm-hmm. Boy, that's, I could talk forever about that one. Um, so we, uh, as I mentioned before, are leasing much of our farmland and, um, actually attempting to gain access through different strategies, long-term uh, buying or, or uh, leasing or land trusts, whatnot. But we're leasing about 250 acres of farmland, tillable farmland, I should say, on which we're growing about 135 to 140 acres of vegetables. Uh, with the organic rotation, we need to have a certain amount of set-aside lands, plow-down crops, green manures, uh, particularly uh, perennial crops. We grow an awful lot of, uh, of, of clover um, and uh, other or biennial covers that, that are on fields for a year or three uh, to uh, uh, take them out of production um, for a lot of good reasons um, uh, related to the organic system and also uh, suppression of, of pathogens, plant pathogens, weeds, pests, and so forth. So we've had about renting about 250 acres um, anywhere. We have been as many as 160 acres of those in vegetables, but have reduced in the last few years, uh, trying to do more and better qualitative management rather than quantitative. Um, on those 130 so acres, we are raising uh, 30 different crops of vegetables, um, asparagus through zucchini. Although we have come to specialize in perhaps a dozen crops that we're growing on more than just four or five acres, um, a lot of them are uh, in recent times shifting towards storage crops like cabbage and carrots, winter squash that have a somewhat more stable um, harvest and and storage life, Uh, and that uh, takes some of the risk out of it. And... um, so we're growing, for example, in October, we harvest 100 tons of carrots and uh, uh, three times that much winter squash and, put, and store in bins and in warehouses and then pack out through the, the uh, late fall, winter. Uh, even now, February, we're still shipping carrots, cabbage to uh, customers uh, throughout the upper Midwest. Uh, we do still do a fair amount of uh, tomatoes and melons and those sorts of, of high-season, highly perishable crops, but uh, less and less. Uh, we are highly mechanized to, to grow that, 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 that uh, amount of crop. We, we still have 50 people working in the field and in the shop and the warehouse and so forth in the summer. There's about 50 of us. But uh, to grow those, that number of carrots, for example, we do have a mechanical harvester. Uh, pretty much everything else harvested by hand, however. And so uh, you can imagine the big crews of people out picking cabbages or picking winter squash in, in September. Um, you know, it's a really vital situation with all the people. That, that's one of the things I truly love about what we do. Uh, but as I said before, fairly mechanized. We've got a dozen tractors and a lot of equipment, uh, cult- you know, different various cultivators for uh, keeping weeds down, um, various planters, transplanters, several greenhouses. 
Um, and then, as I say, a, a warehouse where we uh, receive, store, pack, and ship produce uh, eight, nine months of the year. June 1st through the end of February, I guess, is our basic season. We do a little bit on the margins, uh, May and March if need be. But uh, even in, in, uh, in cold Minnesota, we can, we can be producing, we can be shipping produce out of storage for uh, that, that time of the year. Um, our customers are uh, everything from uh, CSA members, uh, largely in Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, food co-ops, Whole Foods market stores, warehouses, don't do a lot with restaurants, uh, sort of as a, as a philosophical deal, but uh, growing a lot more uh, for uh, retail and for stores, for CSA, for people to prepare food in their own homes. Uh, sort of my, one of the, the basic uh, things that I've always uh, um, uh, thought, at least on some philosophical level, about Featherstone Farm could, and our, our vision. Could you expand a little bit on the decision not to sell um, to, to restaurants? Oh yeah, the, there's nothing. There's nothing particularly wrong with the thing, and I, we, a lot of farmers I know that 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 uh, do a very handy trade with restaurants. I think chefs and and uh, the interest of restaurant tours uh, in in local and high quality organic produce is a really good thing. Um, but um, uh, I guess I've just always I'd be going back to my student days here on Elm Street in New Haven, cooking, you know, buying fresh produce at, at, at Edge of the Woods Market, cooking in my own kitchen. I think there's a kind of an empowerment with that. I think it's a very democratic thing. Um, I like the idea that people are able to uh, take control of their own food destinies and their own kitchens and take produce off of our farm and, and, uh, and, and, and pr- prepare it and feed their families uh, in their own kitchens. It's a, just a little philosophical thing for me, yeah, I guess. Yeah, uh, that definitely resonates with me as I've been, you know, floating between living on campus and off campus and looking at, you know, being on a school's meal plan versus cooking my own food. Uh, oh, there yeah. definitely is a large distance between those two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, so as as a young man who is considering, you know, a career in agriculture, whenever I talk to, you know, adults or, you know, people who are set in their professions about this interest and this passion, um, you know, I get some funky looks like, oh, farming, you're going to use a Yale degree f- to, to go and farm or to go and work with food. That's that's not sustainable. But I think your system, amongst like others across the United States, show that farming can be an economically sustainable way of living. Uh, so if you don't mind me asking, what what kind of money are you taking home for yourself? What kind of salary are you taking home for yourself? And how does your system translate into profits, both for you and like the workers in mm-hmm. your system? Well, uh, the first thing to, to, to say is that what we're really tempted to do with this local organic food system is to invent a or reinvent a kind of a wheel here. You know, it would have been, at least in, in our area of, uh, of uh, southern Minnesota, uh, four, five, six generations ago, there would have been a healthy truck farm economy with diverse farms producing food and shipping them into hay markets originally or ultimately to, to stores. I mean, there were even two generations ago, there were a, a lot of small farms that were still conventional, not organic, but conventional farms shipping uh, produce into regional markets, at least in the upper Midwest, I suspect all over the place, before the rise of uh, the dominance of, of uh, California and the Central Valley and, and, uh, and, and, and even, even more so international food uh, uh, distri- production distribution. So uh, it, it remains to be seen, really, I think, uh, where the right scale, uh, right sizing a farm like ours uh, and, 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 and meeting regional demand and, uh, and being sufficiently profitable, where all that shakes out. Uh, but I think there's real reason to be optimistic about this. 
Our farm does about uh, $1.8 million worth of business a year, all in fresh market vegetables. It's the only thing I do for a living. And um, uh, of course, I, 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 I view you know, a long-term growth and value of the business uh, as, as ultimately the real payoff that I take on a financial level. Um, and um, that's, of course, got to be tied at some level with, with uh, accrued value in land, and, and that's one of our big challenges is, is purchasing land and, and seeing accrual uh, 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 of value through, um, through, through land appreciation. But I'm able to pay myself uh, uh, $50,000, $60,000 a year to live on as an owner draw and then able to, uh, to see, hopefully, uh, a substantial growth in value of the business over time that would uh, fund a retirement and, I think, ultimately uh, send my three kids to college. It would be my goal. Um, it is, as I say, all that I've ever done for a living, but my wife does work off the farm. And uh, there's a great deal of work there involved in, in supporting and, and providing a certain safety net to, to me as a small business owner, as an agricultural producer. It's, a, uh, it's a quite a challenge there, it's a, it's a, but it's a good compliment. Again, having, uh, having a, 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 a spouse that does work off, I'm very grateful for her work off the farm and, and uh, all that she does to keep our household afloat that way. Could you guide us through the labor that goes on on your farm? Who are you employing out of these 50 employees? Uh, I know a few of them are Spanish speakers. A few of them are, you know, youth from the local community. Um, how do the labor practices on your farm and in your system act as a response or a reaction to, you know, the predominant mode of agricultural labor in this country, especially migrant labor forces in the agricultural economy? Mm-hmm. Well, we have this great mix of people that we work with day to day out there. And it's, like I say, one of the real joys of what we do. Uh, we have about 12 or 13 people working right now in February, uh, year-round employees, that is, uh, largely English speakers right now uh, from the local community. But we also have uh, people like myself when I was right out of college and uh, uh, interested in learning the trade, um, not as an apprentice, but as a paid employee. Uh, we, we tend to uh, delegate a lot of authority and, and, and decision-making and, and responsibility to uh, people who and uh, in, in their second, third, fourth years working with us, uh, developing skills and ability to, to manage crops or, or uh, operate equipment or uh, operate systems, irrigation, other things of that kind. So there are, uh, there are four or five uh, young people of this kind working uh, year-round basis and then managing things in the field during the summer. We've got uh, uh, folks working in our machine shop, mechanics and equipment people that are working on, on building and, and, and maintaining equipment year-round. Um, uh, of course, warehouse and distribution. We've got people there that are, uh, uh, again, primarily English speakers, exclusively English speakers, I guess, packing, uh, stacking, shipping pallets of produce to uh, our customers. And then in the summer, we have a field crew as well that uh, – uh, is composed of some of the same folks, English speakers, young folks from the community, but also uh, we have a, a, a long-standing relationship with a, a large family from central Mexico that have been coming to work with us for a decade or more, 13, 13 years now, I guess. What's the family, a, the family name? The Gasca family. The Gasca oh, yeah. family. Uh, these are uh, just, you know, some, again, some of my best friends in the whole world. Uh, three generations of Gascas that work with us. Uh, we've had uh, Hmong families. There's a large Hmong community um, in, in southeast Minnesota. 
We've had relationships for a lot of years with folks that have rented land from us, sub-rented land from us, and had their own gardens and and uh, market market gardens uh, based at our place, and then worked with us in the winter packing crops. Uh, and then this year, we've actually had uh, had some uh, some Amish folks that uh, are nearby coming to work and and uh, picking cherry tomatoes and then packing carrots in the winter. Uh, so we have this great mix of Pennsylvania Dutch and and Hmong and Spanish and other languages being spoken around. It's uh, it's really a uh, it's for, again for a for a Yale College anthropology uh, uh, student, you know, as I was all those years back. There's a real tie in with this cultural dimension. It is really an interesting one and one of the great joys of what I do. I mean, there's certainly parallels between the vegetable quilt you're growing as a part of your like organic system, and then like the human quilt that you have working the land. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's and, so lovely. And this idea that that uh, that that we're you know uh, we have people, uh, English speakers and Hmong speakers both, perhaps even some point Spanish speakers, learning a trade at Featherstone Farm and then going on to start their own farms. Uh, this is one of the great uh, you know again. Uh, uh, the things that makes what, what I do so uh, gratifying in so many ways, seeing that, that again, that, that passage of, uh, of information and inspiration and, uh, and so forth into another generation of people who may do and uh, may grow vegetables and do what we're doing long term. So your, your, your farm, it's, it's an organic farm. And of course, like organic is a highly politicized and kind of amorphous and slippery term. What does organic mean to you? And how far back do you like trace organic practices in your system? Does it start with the fertilizers? Does it start with the soil that's been worked year after year? Um, does it start with like, you know, storing the vegetables? Could, could you tease out some of like the big details of your organic philosophy? Sure. Well, it really has to do, I think, first and foremost with uh, before uh, the, the first fertility or uh, seed or anything else is, is, uh, is purchased or, or input of whatever sort. Uh, it begins with suitability of crop with location. Uh, and I think this is really something that um, uh, gets often overlooked. Uh, if, if, if one matches a crop to a soil, a microclimate, a growing condition in which it's likely to do well, then uh, it's so much more easy to manage organically or any other way. And uh, I think so much of the, the break in sustainability that I see um, not just, well, not in my farm, but uh, in many of my neighbors' farms, other farms that I've, I've seen, where people are attempting, again, to, to grow uh, crops on steep land in our area or a ground that's too wet that requires uh, too many inputs to get out of, out of a cold, wet soil, uh, germination of crops. So there, it begins with that idea of, of, of growing something that's a site appropriate. And uh, I still struggle with this, of course, with the diversity of vegetable crops, finding the right match, right soils, uh, right... Um, uh, hydrology, right, uh, topography for, for growing tomatoes, for example. There are so many choices of all the 250 acres that we grow to, to suit that right, uh, that right crop to the right spot. But at any rate, uh, the organic system, though, certainly begins with, um, with uh, uh, not just uh, protecting but building and uh, uh, adding to organic matter in soil from the, at, at every step of the way, protecting that topsoil, keeping the topsoil covered uh, with uh, some sort of a green cover at, at, all, at as much as possible, as, at having as few bare soils uh, as possible to, to uh, protect organic matter and, and all of that 
fantastic uh, uh, microbiology in the soil, which which will desiccate and 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 uh, and, and dry down and, and and die off in the absence of of uh, active uh, cover crop or roots uh, root development and so forth. Uh, we do an awful lot for other stone farm with cover crops and uh, mineral soil mineralization, long-term release things uh, like uh, uh, soft rock phosphate, uh, a lot of uh, high cal lime we put down with the uh, uh, plow down years in, in, uh, or the, the, the cover crop years, uh, perennial years, uh, mineralization of soils. Um, we do a fair amount of composting, although I feel like it's more effective from a uh, from a carbon standpoint from a input standpoint management standpoint to grow carbon in the field with a with a he- healthy cover crop than to try to bring it in on a truck from someplace or to generate it in our own farm where uh, there can be uh, pathogens uh, uh, plant pathogens in compost uh, feedstocks, for example, which can persist even in high temperatures and, and, and pass one year's cabbage disease on to the following year's broccoli disease, broccoli crop, that kind of thing. Uh, so we're growing a lot of cover crops, and um, then we're taking very, very careful uh, stock of uh, plant nutrition uh, with uh, vine crops in particular, fruiting things, melons, winter squash, tomatoes, peppers. Uh, doing uh, tissue samples uh, at intervals throughout the growing season, really looking at what the plant is able to absorb from through its root system in a given condition. Just having sufficient calcium or having sufficient uh, potassium in the soil uh, profile does not necessarily guarantee that it's available to the plant for a lot of different reasons. And so uh, doing tissue sampling to see if the plant really is absorbing uh, what it needs to uh, create a heavy uh, fruiting fruit set, for example, in the absence of disease. And then we're able to feed back uh, uh, micronutrients through liquid or solid form uh, based on those, those analyses. We've got pretty good s- systems for fertigating through uh, drip tape on some of these crops or, or broadcasting dry fertility over a broccoli crop, say, to bring a nutrient level back up. And uh, if, if one does all these things properly, I, I believe you can, you can prevent uh, 80, 90 percent of the, the pest and disease pressure by, by really attending to fertility and uh, 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 plant vigor, you know, at, at, you know, again, starting with a, a year before the crop is even in the ground with a cover crop regime and the rotation. It's possible to prevent most of the issues that uh, we otherwise have, would have to deal with by a spray or a, a cultivation with weed pressure, other things, you know, it's uh, planning and prevention is uh, really one of these foundations of the organic system. Great. So there are a few different, there's a whole range, right, of size of organic producers, like in the United States. Uh, There are large organic farms and there are, you know, smaller family farms or market gardens. Where do you situate your operation and do you perceive or have you felt at any point in the past a tension between, you know, the the different polarities of organic production? Mm, Good question. Well, you know, the, I think in the big scheme of things, we are 0.001% largest vegetable farm in the country, uh, although the USDA does consider us a large farm because of the uh, numbers of dollars that go through our hands, which is related to direct marketing rather than selling to a packing house or through contracts with a, with a, a big warehouse of some kind. Uh, we, we do a lot of direct marketing and therefore have a, a, a higher cash flow. USDA considers us a large farm. And we are one of the larger um, uh, organic vegetable farms of our sort in the upper Midwest. Um, 
but that doesn't mean by any means that I think of Featherstone Farm as a large farm. We're still a, uh, uh, a small farm at heart, still learning uh, at an incredible rate. I think it's still a startup after 20 years in terms of understanding right so- questions of scale, questions of sustainability of all sorts. Um, I certainly do not feel any desire or pressure to grow any larger. Uh, although there's uh, still, it feels like an, almost an infinite market potential out there for uh, the type of crop that we produce uh, in the upper Midwest. It's really a question of uh, 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 deciding what uh, it is that we, are, we find most important with the existing farm, um, sticking with those things that are working, attempting to modify those things that are not, but certainly not growing the thing any further. At, uh, we're, at a, we're at a good spot right now, and, and maybe, as I say, continue to contract if not the, the, the scale of sales, at least the scale of plantings, and to, to produce more with better management off of fewer acres, I think is certainly the, the, my idea for the future. Great. So on the note of the future, um, would you like to provide, I guess, any parting words of advice or guidance to members of my generation and, and your son's generation who want to have a more ethical, sustainable, spiritually aware relationship to food? Words of advice. Well, uh, well, I guess I think you you just need to be open to the possibilities and to, and to 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 really be uh, uh, thoughtful about what you find valuable in this world. I think there's possible to do the things that you've said from a from an office job or from a, a position in academia or or whatever it is that that one chooses to do. It's not as though. I uh, have found the only right path and that uh, every you know, organic farmer has got a halo around their heads and, and that everyone should aspire to, to be uh, 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 doing what I'm doing. I would never recommend that. Obviously, this is, uh, there is opportunity in what I do, and I would certainly encourage people to consider it, but not to do so um, uh, without uh, real thought for the hardships and the difficulties that we still face in this industry and in this uh, destabilized climate. I think one thing bear, worth uh, worth mentioning, uh, one of the ongoing challenges for us, but um, I think it's possible to be uh, very connected with uh, one source of food, to be thoughtful about uh, the environmental and, and uh, uh, labor practices, um, the values of the farms that uh, one sources one's food from. Uh, from just about any locale. Certainly having some hands-on engagement, whether it's gardening or going to a farmer's market even, really asking farmers about what they're doing and why they're growing this and why this looks that way. Certainly understanding more of that, getting some grounding, whether it's at the Yale Student Farm or um, through a a gardening in in, in one's own backyard. I mean, these are all really good foundation level things to, to get that real world engagement that helps put these other questions in perspective. But uh, uh, would I have any particular advice? Um, uh, grow and produce as much of your own food as possible. You know, whether it's uh, uh, just, again, a couple of plants in the patio, tomato plants in a, in a patio. I mean, even that is, is, is intensely uh, useful and gratifying thing. And uh, whether it grows into a little bit of a garden in the backyard in the subsequent years or, or to a, uh, be a, becoming a member of a CSA farm uh, or, or even going out and doing this more for a living, I think there's a world of possibility out there. But just having some role in, 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 in producing and, and preparing uh, one's own food, I think, is my, my first uh, and, and best advice, I guess. All right. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day for nope. this interview. Appreciate I, my it. Appreci- I'm, my, I'm the one that's grateful. Thank you.